0: You're listening to the UnSiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. UnSiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host,
1: Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to UnSiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Aaron Sundararajan who is a professor of business at New York University, specializing in technology, operations, data science, entrepreneurship, innovation. He covers the field, which I like. And he's also the author of this book called The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment and the Rise of Crowd-Based capitalism. So, you know, I love the the title because it's very, you know, you got to make a splash by talking about the end of something and the rise of something. And this book is now, you know, six years old. I was rereading it and I was thinking, I wonder if this book will have stood the test of time given that so much has happened in in six years. And indeed, there are a lot of timeless themes in here. And I don't think there's any reason to be embarrassed (laughs) by anything you said six years ago, but we will talk about kind of what has changed, what, what kind of lived up to your expectations and, and what didn't. And I think you, you were mentioning to me right before we started the recording that you were thinking about what this might look like ex post. Can you tell us a bit about that? What were you thinking when you were writing this book?
0: First of all, I mean, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. You know, you're putting together a great set of thinkers and topics. So, you know, I'm very happy to be adding to that excellent collection. So I was very interested in the topic for many years before I decided to write the book. So in many ways, the book contract was sort of offered to me without me soliciting it. And I figured, hey, why not? There's a lot of stuff that I've thought about that I'm probably not going to write a series of academic papers about. People who are not academics seem to respect you more if you've got a book under your belt. But I, I wrote the actual content of the book in a very short period of time over a few weeks, one summer. And that's not to say that I came up with everything in the book over that period. I had sort of done that for many years before. But to what we were discussing before uh, the conversation started, I did think a lot about how is this book going to read in 10 years. And I was thinking about many of the books that I read that were written in 1998 or 99 that sort of breathless with anticipation of all of the change that the dot-com bubble was going to bring. And then you sort of glance through them a few years later and most of the companies they're talking about are no longer around and none of the change seems to have transpired. So I did try and choose more conceptual topics. That's my bias as a professor as well. But things that were not sort of trading off a greater sense of permanence for more radical predictions or, you know, sort of clickbait headlines.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in the popular press, we always like to talk about, you know, what's new, what's changing, what's dramatic. But, you know, as academics, we're we're kind of looking for underlying rules. We're looking for underlying principles that are applied in specific circumstances. And so a lot of the themes of this book are really about community and, and about trust and about efficiencies and you know, the term sharing economy, a lot of people don't even use this, this term anymore. And, and in the book, you were, you were talking about, you know, should you talk about the sharing economy or the on-demand economy? And you were debating what term to use. And that term has kind of risen and, and fallen somewhat. But the fundamental underlying concepts that you talk about with respect to asset sharing and market creation and, you know, matching of supply and demand, you know, these things are, have always been concerns of, of economists.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, I'm hoping that the fact that I called my book The Sharing Economy had uh, more to do with its rise than its fall. That's always a concern one has when choosing a title. But you're right. The set of changes that I ended up focusing on, which I call crowd-based capitalism or the rise of crowd-based capitalism in the book, I believe are still playing out and will continue to play out for the next couple of decades. Because in the 18th century, we had pure market-based economies in much of the world, a lot of the United States, sort of the Adam Smith economy of our economics textbook, right? The individual producer selling to the individual consumer. And then over the 19th and 20th century, we created first the railroads, the telephone, the telegraph, different innovations that led to the mass production and mass distribution of the 20th century and then the rise of the modern corporation, which really sort of came of age in the second half of the 20th century, which is a very different way of organizing the world's economic activity, right? It's not individual producers being guided by the invisible hand connecting with individual consumers. It's it's very different. It's much more centralized. And what I saw crowd-based capitalism as is the emergence of a middle ground because the platforms that I was studying Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, TaskRabbit, there's a range of others. I mean, you can go back to YouTube and uh, Taobao, that's one of Alibaba's platforms. Many of the big Chinese platforms like Didi, they looked like organizations in some ways. They were not just matching supply and demand. They were doing more. They were providing trust. They were aggregating the supply and demand. They were layering on some managed services. They were sometimes providing logistics and delivery. And they were offering a branded face to the consumer the way a modern corporation did. But they weren't like Walmart or like a transportation company or hotel chain. They were fundamentally different because they had a number of very market-like elements as well. Like millions of producers were finding their customers. There was matching And so I am still convinced, you know, six years later that the future of capitalism in the United States is going to be what I described as crowd-based capitalism, where we create platforms of increasing influence that sit somewhere between that 18th century marketplace and that 20th century, the visible hand of Alfred Chandler, the, the traditional organization. And this will be the new template for how we organize the economic activity of the 21st century.
1: Yeah, you have a whole section in there on kind of the the limitations of this whole markets versus hierarchy dichotomy that economists have been working with for a long time, right? It's fairly standard. You recount this wonderful passage from Herbert Simon where some alien from outer space comes in and couldn't help but note the importance of a kind of hierarchies and, and organizations and kind of the limited role of markets. But there have always been things that don't fit neatly into those boxes, right? So, I mean, if you think about the New York Stock Exchange, right, the New York Stock Exchange is essentially a institution that creates a market or even the classified pages of the New York Times, right, were effectively something which didn't really fit into either one of these buckets did economists start realizing the limitations of this dichotomy only with the rise of what we call now platforms?
0: Well, I think that, you know, the way economists think, they like to simplify the world in a way that lends itself to sort of neat mathematical analysis. And I say this with love. I have conducted a lot of that sort of neat simplified mathematical analysis in my own research for at least a decade of So of my early career was applied economic theory, industrial organization. And so I'm very fond of those models. But I think the dichotomy was convenient when one wanted to sort of create that simplification. I don't think we should conclude that economists all think that there are two extremes. And I think part of the underlying scientific, like the philosophy of science sort of underlying economic theory and economic analysis is that we're not saying that, you know, the economists are saying we're not saying the world is exactly like this, but we're going to simplify it dramatically so that we can learn something within our simplified model. And maybe some of the insight from that simplified model will guide us in this sort of more complex, unstructured world. But you're absolutely right in your basic point. I mean, we have had different kinds of hybrids that have popped up periodically. You had Avon, you know, with its team of cosmetic salespeople. You've had franchise operations that are not really between organizations and markets, but have sort of something different from the employee people full-time within a large umbrella. I think what I found most interesting about the sharing economy was that it was a consistent new pattern across a range of industries. And when one looked back at what happened before Airbnb and Uber, and I sort of trace it back to either Alibaba's Taobao marketplace or YouTube as sort of being good early examples of crowd-based capitalism. You've got this heterogeneous crowd of people People, some big, some small, using this to find their customers, but not in the way that you use a hands-off marketplace or New York Stock Exchange or sort of a medieval bazaar with sort of a layering and an ownership of that customer experience and of that transaction in part by the marketplace itself. And so, I'm not claiming that there is one template across all of these industries that has become standardized. I think we're in that period of active experimentation where, over the next maybe 10, 15, 20 years, we'll settle on some standard forms of platform based organization in the same way that we have settled on some standard forms of what does an organization look like. You know, you get a job, you expect you'll have a desk, you'll have an office, you'll have a boss, you'll have vacation days, there'll be a certain pattern of interaction between you and the organization, you'll get a salary for your labor and talent. So all of those different templates will be put in place in some standardized way across the platforms. But the scope of this transformation just sort of seemed so immense to me. Like I was convinced that Airbnb would be far and away the world's largest provider of short-term accommodation. They are today Their market share has grown significantly post-COVID. It's a bigger share of a smaller market right now, but it'll soon be a bigger share of a bigger market. Uber will be one of the dominant providers of transportation in the world, and Tesla will have an Uber-like service, and Google will have an Uber-like service probably, maybe BMW. But these are fundamental changes that are digitally enabled to the way, to the sort of the business model. They bring network effects into industries that never had network effects they are creating a fundamentally new template for how the economic activity is going to be organized. And so it just seemed so much more profound than, hey, here's a new networked organization. Here's a new franchising model. Here's sort of some direct sales model. To me, it seemed like, you know, the template for the future.
1: Yeah, you're highlighting a bunch of different trends, right? So the one is just the expansion of these platform type business models. And that would include something like eBay, right? I mean eBay is is essentially just an electronic version of a marketplace. It doesn't quite have the other transformation elements that you're pointing to, which is sometimes about the conversion of, you know, product into service, right? Like Uber and so forth. But also there's this important community element that you emphasize, right? So if we go back to the 18th century, you know, it wasn't all market. I mean, there was a lot of community-based interactions and I think a lot of people would argue that the community interactions fell when, when markets rose. And now you're saying kind of there's a way that communities are coming back in this kind of hybrid form, right? They're cyborgs with the market. I remember when I was taking economic history in graduate school, there was a professor who was puzzled by the uptake of McCormick Reaper purchases among farmers in the U.S., And it was a puzzle because the average farm size was so small that it didn't make sense. And so he said that the dominant theory was that American farmers were irrational. And that's just because there were no records of these farmers pooling their resources or lending these things out to one another. So communities always played a huge role. And so I think part of your argument is that like the Airbnbs and maybe Lyft more so than than Uber, there is this non-commercial element that exists within the the commercial transactions for some of these new platforms is it a necessary part of i mean cuz
0: that's a great question i think it's an aspirational part of my argument i'll explain what i mean in my reading of economic history a lot of the connection like you know the human connection was stripped out of commercial interaction as we invented mass production distribution and the organization of the 20th century We made commerce more faceless and impersonal as opposed to being connected. And this is one of the things that really drew me to the sharing economy when I first started participating in it. You know, you'd have a conversation with your blah, blah car driver early on with your Lyft driver. You'd sit in the front seat, you'd fist bump, you'd chat, you know, your Airbnb host. Even if you didn't form a connection with the host directly through the host sort of being there and making friends with you. You formed a connection with the person because you were in their space. There's a of intimacy associated with living in someone's space. And it's a more connected way of fulfilling that economic need of short-term accommodation than staying in a faceless hotel room. And so I guess aspirationally, my hope was that because of the fact that this had been stripped out of 20th century commerce, and because human beings have a need for connection, that the sharing economy might bring back some of this connected commerce, but with all of the efficiencies associated with you know, mass markets and multi-billion dollar companies and standardized trust. Six years later, it's a mixed bag. I think Lyft has largely been depersonalized. They're not the Lyft of 2012. Blah Blah Car is still pretty much the same as it was. Airbnb, I think there's a much greater variety. You have the highly personalized, you have the somewhat personalized, you've got the highly impersonal 20th century vacation rental transaction there as well. But to me, the appeal of some of these technologies was actually that they were not created to form this connection. This wasn't like a lot of the technologies that emerged in the first decade of the century, right, that were social networking, dating, community formation technologies that were supposed to connect us with other people. These were fulfilling an economic need, and the community was a byproduct. And that seemed like, you know, sort of more scalable and more appealing in many ways. And this is what led me to discover these gift economies that had been sort of a part of different cultures through history where the exchange of the object or even like the transfer of the object and what its utility was, was sort of largely irrelevant. The act of giving or the act of receiving was a way of forming a connection. This is not, I think, the sentiment associated necessarily with Christmas these days, but it's sort of, you know, like the object could be completely meaningless, but, you know, I'm giving it to you. And I saw some of that in the early sharing economy activity as well, like, you know, with couch surfing, nobody was looking at this as a way of finding short-term accommodation primarily. They were looking at it as a social network. And the offer of the couch just happened to be the gift that facilitated the transaction. So, you know, when I say aspirational, I don't think that the promise of more connected commerce has blossomed in the way that I hoped it would, but I still think that we've moved the needle from the faceless interaction of going to a Sam's Club, for example. I mean, Etsy is still a lot more personalized than that. Airbnb is more personal and more connected than like booking a Marriott room.
1: Yeah, you do spend some time discussing this whole idea of the, the gift economy and paying it forward and, and not really thinking too carefully about the tit-for-tat and the the bilateral bargain, and you say that you know this is a deep human need. Certainly, if you have a friend over for dinner, you know you don't invoice them. Right? So we kind of in our minds we have this dichotomy between our personal relationships and our, our commercial relationships. But they, they've never really been fully separated. The community relationships in in small scale societies, there's always something of an economic element, even if it's not super, super well-defined and measured and and monitored. So do you think that it's inevitable that the community-ness of these marketplaces will ultimately degrade? I mean, I look at something like Lending Club or or Prosper, and in the original days, you would individually examine a loan application and say, oh, well, this person, I can kind of identify with this person. I'll give them a, a chunk of money. And now it's all hedge funds that provide like all the money. It's not peer-to-peer anymore. it's It's a platform for lending, but the peer-to-peer element has been stripped out. and you know a big chunk of these Airbnbs are essentially commercially run real estate projects. Is that sort of an inevitable trend or do you think we'll always have heterogeneity and people will will select based on how much of this community they want? and and can a company like Airbnb sustain? Simultaneously, a community-type feel and a simple market transaction-type feel.
0: Yeah, it's a great question, actually, because if you look at markets or internet-enabled marketplaces and then almost immediately their successes, internet-enabled platforms, since the mid-1990s, since the rise of eBay, this always has been a tension typically driven by the need to scale supply rapidly. And I think eBay started out as a place where you could buy these curious, interesting things from other individuals. And then over time, very rapidly, actually, demand far outstripped supply. And so eBay made the strategic choice to bring in commercial retailers to scale up the supply to meet the demand. And in some ways, that caused eBay to lose its identity, People didn't really know what eBay was. It's not like Etsy is now, which has sort of a well-defined identity as a place where you get handmade stuff or you know, it's a more personalized commercial experience. eBay had a little bit of that. They had sort of like, you know, the retailers at scale. And many other platforms have gone through the same trajectory. I mean, Lending Club and Prosper are great examples where, again, like, you know, the demand for loans far outstripped the peer-to-peer supply. And I think Airbnb struggled with this as it evolved and, to the best of my knowledge, made a concerted effort to preserve for many years the feel of it being different from a faceless hotel-like transaction. They didn't go into the bulk supply for many years. They instead did the really hard work of enrolling host by host across hundreds of cities And it wasn't a purely sort of branding choice. It was also a smart economic choice because the network effects associated with Airbnb are so much stronger in part because of that massive host base that they have built and like, you know, the reputations of the hosts that sort of sit on the Airbnb platform. I don't know whether it's inevitable that some of this personalized feel will get stripped out i personally believe that the commercial and the personal can coexist on the same marketplace if the marketplace or the platform is sophisticated enough to be able to manage it so this really is less about economic inevitability and more about design airbnb is it's among the most sophisticated organizations in terms of thinking about platform design it's not surprising, both two of their founders are from the Rhode Island School of Design rather than being like the economists or computer scientists that sort of typically start these high-tech companies. And so so in many ways, I feel like they are ahead of the pack in terms of thinking about that. So if someone could pull it off, it would probably be Airbnb. But I think eventually you hit up against a scale versus feel trade-off. Etsy will never scale beyond a certain point as they preserve the feel of Etsy. And if they do, they will lose it. This is all driven by demand, right? And if the world was sort of beating down the doors of the platforms and saying, all I care about is connection, I don't care about price then we'd see a different trajectory. But it still seems like not everybody is looking for this connection. They care more about variety and convenience and price. So that's the kind of answer I would give to my MBA students, which has not really answered the question precisely, but has sort of provided a whole bunch of like different ways to think about the problem.
1: Yeah, so I want to go back to some of the fundamental economics of this idea of sharing and pooling. And you say at the very beginning of the book that we're moving from an asset heavy world to an asset light world. Perhaps another way of saying that is that we're moving from a world where there is a lot of idle capacity or a lot of sterile asset base into a world where things will be kind of continuously used. You know, as someone who teaches operations occasionally, you know, that that's sort of how I think about a lot of this, right? When you look around the world, you see cars that aren't being used. I actually can see from where I am about a couple hundred books that are not currently being read. There's a lot of stuff that's sitting idle, both on corporate balance sheets and on individual balance sheets. And I think a lot of these platforms were originally about freeing up assets that are idle on individual balance sheets, but increasingly it's basically moving to the, to the world of corporate balance sheets. Can you tell us a bit about what is making that possible? How does this concept of granularity fit in? In the law and economics world, we talk about assets as bundles of sticks, and a lot of what entrepreneurs are doing is they're unbundling and, and rebundling these sticks.
0: Yeah, well, I think at the foundation of our ability to utilize the capacity Of assets more effectively is the rise of personal technology, of sophisticated personal technology like PCs everywhere, or sort of more importantly, the smartphone. So, a significant fraction of the world's consumers now have this extremely powerful, general purpose GPS enabled device that they carry around. And the fact that your consumer has that powerful device that can run software, that can sort of track their location allows you to start to think about business models that may not have worked in the absence of this widespread consumer technology now somehow being operationally feasible. You know, I remember a service called Cosmo back in during the dot-com bubble who offered to deliver anything to your home for a fee. They had just started to get profitable in Manhattan, actually, when the bubble burst and they went out of business. But it was a much harder business to run than, say, DoorDash or Uber Eats. Because not only did consumers not have devices, but every delivery person had to be equipped with a special purpose sort of order fulfillment box. Now a DoorDash delivery person can just sort of install the app on their phone. And so this pervasiveness of technology that makes these new imagined ways of using the capacity possible, I think is at the foundation of why we're able to invent business models that let this capacity be used. I think the technological advances that also make trust at scale more viable, where if you are, in fact, tapping into personal balance sheets, you need enough trust to be able to transact with a stranger who does not have a brand, right? So having reputation systems, having verified IDs, having the platform sort of provide this trust allows you to not just operationally access that capacity but makes it a product that someone is willing to pay for and can trust. So I think these are two sort of building blocks for freeing up that spare capacity. I think there's a limit to it. I've certainly like in the peer-to-peer car rental market, for example, I've seen over the years through my own research, a significant increase in the capacity utilization of vehicles that are on these platforms. You know, we used to throw around this number of 5%. Back in 2011, 2012, 95% was the idle time of a car. You know, if your car is on a peer-to-peer rental platform, that drops significantly. It doesn't drop to zero, but 95 goes to
1: 65 Well, the 5% is really 1% when you factor in all the empty seats that you have in the car when you're driving around.
0: Yes, exactly. And so you've got blah blah car taking us forward on the empty seats front and Get around and Turo taking us forward on the sort of unbundling the product in space and time and like, you know, sort of productizing it. But, you know, as overcoming the operational challenges, which is sort of the third building block, right? If you think about it, the personal balance sheet items that were commercialized by the sharing economy first were your home and your car these are typically the two most valuable things that an individual owns. I mean, like, you know, these are high-value assets, and so their idle capacity has high economic value. And as a consequence, the transaction costs associated with making that a product can be overcome because the economic value created is big enough. You know, you've got hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars worth of transaction value. The car has the additional advantage of being mobile. The logistics of car rental are easier than, say, the logistics of apparel rental, because you know the car can be parked back, transports itself to where it's supposed to be, right? And so there's a lot of other potential, relatively high value, low utilization assets. I mean, like, you know, there's high end apparel. There were lots of community-based tool libraries that emerged early in the sharing economy, but Logistically, the operations of getting an asset owned by someone to someone else or getting a piece of apparel owned by someone to someone else, then getting it dry cleaned, getting it back. Those costs have to drop substantially before we start to see capacity freeing from personal balance sheets and other sectors. And so, you know, I, I often imagine a world in which drones are widespread and in which everything is smart So your power drill can know where it is. It has technology in it that allows it to be rented. And then it calls a drone. The drone then sort of carries the power drill sort of to whoever wants to rent it. You know, in some ways, a terrifying image, right? I mean, the world filled with like drones carrying power drills is not sort of an ideal scenario. But that kind of logistical improvement, I think, will keep us improving sort of the personal dimension or the personal sort of inventory freeing up. Commercially, the organizations just are, who have assets are just able to deploy them more efficiently, right? So someone who was in the vacation rental business can now realize more from the same asset because the markets are better. Someone who is in the car rental business, you know, City Car Share has 300 cars. They now operate through the get around platform. They sort of are able to run their business better and get better capacity
1: utilization. Yeah, I always wondered if this concept was related to the one, I think it was Harold Demzets had this whole thing about metering. And before you could have individual gas meters, you more or less had to provide gas to an entire building, right? And then the landlord would essentially be responsible. And then once we had the ability to create these meters at scale, then you could start invoicing the individual users. So a lot of what you're describing is really advances in metering technology. I mean, there's the contracting technology, but then there's this, this idea of how do we subdivide this thing into ever smaller granular bits.
0: Yeah, there's a limit to how much these items are going to be subdivided because there's a demand limit, right? I mean, you know, I may not want to rent a car for three minutes. At some level, there's always going to be slack in the system because there are only certain bundles that have a market,
1: you may want three minutes of AWS, though, to spin up something, right?
0: Yeah. So I think, like, you know, cloud computing, there you go. I mean, we've seen dramatic improvements in capacity utilization of computing technology, right? What's happened in parallel, of course, is sort of our demand for computing technology has just sort of grown so dramatically that, you know, we still need to add, like, probably billions of new computers every year.
1: But I wonder if this, this idea of, like, peer-to-peer is really a transition Balance sheets that were built under an old regime, and now we're trying to adapt to a new regime. So you know we inherit these balance sheets. but going forward, the balance sheets might look very different. I remember I was asked to do a talk on the sharing economy and I came up with a kind of a two by two that looked very similar. You know, we love two by twos in, in business school, right? And you've got this, you know, the mesh, the meshiness two by two. And, and it's like, look, you know, you're going to share a car, but you're not going to share a vacuum cleaner because the transaction costs are too high and the logistics are too high. But then I realized like, you know, we already do this. It's just called housekeeper, right? housekeepers that carry their vacuums with them from house to house that's sharing except it's the third party that owns it and in fact you know Marriott is in the sharing economy in the sense that it's providing this room in subdivided slices to people so will we see now that we have the ability to convert products into services is this whole notion of sharing a car will we look back 10 years from now and and think well well that was really weird that we would share cars rather than just Access them on demand from a fleet provider?
0: Yeah. You know, I think it's an open question as to how much of the peer to peer will persist. I think the peer to peer model will end up being more appealing in situations where you have a greater amount of demand variability. And they will be particularly useful when, you know, economies face maybe predictable, but sort of substantial demand shock, like hosting the Olympics or like convention coming to town, where the economics associated with building dedicated capacity that can then be divided into slices doesn't work out. And so the idea of, hey, the value of short-term accommodation rental has gone up because demand has suddenly been shocked upwards. And so let's use the marketplace to sort of repurpose the capacity that Either would have been lying idle or maybe sort of I move my kids into the living room so that I can make $500 a night during the Olympics. And so that kind of demand variability, I think, will be one part of the continued appeal of the sharing economy or of peer-to-peer markets. I think another will be tied to how work evolves and how the models that we use to generate income. I've been waiting for a while for us to shift away from an employment, The you know, this is the end of employment dimension, where it seems to me that our attachment to the employment model is sort of greater than I had anticipated, that there's a higher level of viscosity in some sense associated with the organizational change that is necessary before we move to a world where more and more people are not full-time employees, but something else. But I think if you couple that with sort of the transition that we're going through because of certain things being automated by AI and robotics and other sort of digital technologies, we will slowly get to a point where the idea that you can build some capital and then generate a revenue stream from it as an individual, and that is part of how you earn a living, could become appealing. Now, whether or not it will take off at scale... Like, you know, will we have 30% of the economy generating power for the other 70% and providing short-term accommodation? You know, I'll have a fully autonomous car that's mine, it drops me at work and then I send it off to make some money for me as like a car on demand and then it comes back and picks me up. Whether or not this will be the future or whether we end up with gigantic centralized repositories of assets that are then rented out by a small number of companies, I don't think this is going to be determined by the technology itself. I think it's going to be determined by the political and economic system surrounding the technology. Like, you know, you know this as well as I do, right? That the technology itself doesn't determine whether we end up with a certain model or whether we have more or less inequality. It's, you know, AI can lead to a more equal society, a more unequal society. It depends on the society. And so I've always encouraged policymakers and regulators and other sort of elected government and unelected government officials to do what they can to favor the platform business models that encourage the creation of decentralized capital, where there's somehow a nudge given to individuals being able to monetize their assets, individuals feeling like they are running a business, doesn't have to be just physical capital it can be structural capital as well but you an airbnb host is more of a small business owner than an uber driver they're both small business owners in different ways but airbnb's host is building brand through reputation they are setting prices they're managing inventory as they build expertise and get better at doing that and understanding their own tiny niche market their ability to earn more money by running that business grows. And to me, this is an important part of a good future in a platform-based world. I mean, a bad future is one where everything is centralized and there's a race to the bottom for my labor and talent. It just doesn't come with all of the safety net associated with employment. The answer to your question of like, you know, how much peer-to-peer are we going to see really ends up being a, hey, it depends on like what policy nudges the government ends up giving us, because I think that's the right future. And it's a question of charting a course to getting there.
1: Now, a lot of economists would say, well, maybe it makes more sense for you to take your savings and put it into... Tesla stock, as opposed to putting it into a Tesla that you you rent out, you know let Tesla own the fleet and then you don't have to manage the accounting and the, <laughs> and all this stuff right you know, just you'll generate a higher return, but then you don't have these non pecuniary benefits that you're describing, and so maybe we'll dig into that because you've written quite a bit about the changing nature of work. maybe we can tie that back to what you'd written about. Reputation. You said that one of the advantages of, say, an Airbnb as opposed to a Craigslist is that Airbnb will carefully vet, you know, the homes and, and manage the the reputation and, and have some ways of excluding bad actors. And this is super important. And a lot of people don't understand this. I was in Argentina recently and I was staying with a host family, and they said, "Oh, you you know, you should never take Uber because you're driving with a stranger. Instead, you should you know take this trusted taxi service that." I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, and I'm like, yeah, but Uber knows who it is, right? So it takes a while for people to understand that. But what we've done, essentially, is we've delegated, the government has delegated certain regulatory functions to these, these companies, and they have an incentive to, to do this regulation right. We've also delegated to companies, historically, all sorts of other responsibilities, like taking care of employees, you know, making sure they have health care, making sure they have a safety net and so forth. In today's world, where we have this strict division between employee and non-employee, where the ones who are employees get all these benefits and the people who are not don't get them, isn't this sort of a regulatory system, a social support system that was designed for a completely different world?
0: Yeah, there's such an interesting sort of mesh of topics in there. So let's sort of unpack... At least a couple of them. One is you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you take the economist's point of view to regulation, you know, regulation is like intervention to prevent market failure, right? Historically, the government has been the entity that entered to prevent market failure. And now Uber can prevent market failure in the taxi industry by playing some of the roles that the government used to play. And these trust and reputation roles are a big part of it. And it's certainly sort of far more important in sort of the higher stakes kinds of transactions like getting into a stranger's car, you know, handing over your apartment to someone than it is in, say, like, you know, sort of buying clothing online, which is, you know, how bad can the outcome be there, right? And so the value created by preventing market failure through sort of a robust reputation system is lower there and higher in the Uber and Airbnb and blah, blah, car cases. But it's part of a trend of society handing over a greater and greater fraction of these government responsibilities to private third parties. You know, it's not entirely new. We've had medieval guilds that prevented market failure. There have been other non-governmental organizations. We have the Bar Association, we have the American Medical Association, Realtors. I mean, these are there's sort of a good history of self-regulation or self-regulatory bodies that are intervening. But outside of the sharing economy, if I look at the kind of government-like roles that we've handed over to platforms like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple. We've handed over censorship responsibilities. You know, society has given them surveillance capabilities, whether or not they use them is a different matter. Our ID is often a Facebook ID rather than a government ID. Like, you know, platforms are backing currency. They are choosing the division of rights between the creator and a consumer of intellectual property. Mm I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just something that de facto seems to have happened over the last 20 years. And we've seen it happen in situations where the stakes are increasingly higher, right? I mean, we look to Twitter and Facebook to maintain social order after, you know, the elections. We look to Airbnb to cancel travel to Washington, D.C. These are actors that were sort of taking on very serious government-like responsibilities, right? And so... Part of it is market failure regulatory intervention. I've always maintained that we should delegate that responsibility to the party that has the best data and the best enforcement capability. So we don't hear this too much anymore, but five years ago, governments around the world were asking platforms, give me your data. And I would say, why do you want their data? Why don't you instead give them the regulatory responsibility? Because they'll always have better data than what they can give you. And they have the best enforcement capability. Like, you know, if a host is breaking the law, Airbnb has far better enforcement capability than a
1: city agency. Or like copyright infringement on YouTube or on, on eBay. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. And and that's why some of this delegation occurs. but. You know, if you think about the broadening of these societal responsibilities to things like maintaining social order, I think that takes us into sort of unpacking the second dimension of what you asked about, right, which is the privatization of providing the social safety net that we saw over the 20th century, primarily in the United States, the UK and Japan. If you go to Denmark or if you go to France or Germany, the government has
1: a larger responsibility. But in those countries, they still do make that division, right? If you have a company that has more than you know X number of employees, then you have to provide a whole suite of products. And if you're classified as an employee, there's a very different set of legal responsibilities than if you're classified as a contractor or a part-time worker.
0: Absolutely. So they not only have a greater level of responsibility borne by the government, but they also have a more extensive social safety net. In general, but you're making a really good point here, which is that we seem to have tied it in many countries across the world to this one arrangement of work, which is I provide all of my labor and talent to you. You pay me a salary and therefore you are the natural party, the employer, to also provide me with the safety net dimensions that the government has decided the private sector will provide rather than the government providing it itself. And that's where we run into trouble in a platform world, right? Because the nature of the relationship between the individual and institution is fundamentally different here. It's not as tightly coupled and it's not as exclusive as the General Motors relationship with its factory workers. You know, I think a lot of people, they idealize the idea of employment, as being sort of the best way to organize work.
1: Yeah. Well, we still talk about jobs. I know a lot of people that don't even know how to answer that question when they're asked about what is your job. But in the public policy circles, we're always talking about creating jobs and losing jobs. And, you know, will we stop talking about jobs at some point?
0: I think so, but it's going to be a couple of decades, I think. I think we will go through a process of converting the non-employment work We'll create sort of job measured metrics of this non-employment work because, you know, we still want to keep some continuity in how we track unemployment and the growth of work. We measure the growth of work opportunities through like, you know, how many jobs were created. And so we'll sort of add up all of the work that is being created on these platforms, convert them into jobs and still talk about jobs. It's really important to point out here that Like, or to decouple the categorization from the benefits. We built the social safety net so that the private sector would bear some of the burden of the safety net. And we happened to attach it to this thing called employment because employment happened to be the most common form of work arrangement at the time and the one best suited for the company taking on responsibility, right? Someone spending 40 hours a week with me and only me, I feel better about paying for their benefits. But employment itself, it doesn't come pre-bundled with all of these good benefits, You know, if you read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, you have a good sense for just how horrific employment was 100 years ago. And then, you know, the New Deal and, you know, all of the progress made employment good. And so to me, the big public policy challenge here is, yes, we have to sort of go beyond the dichotomy of independent contractor and employee. But what's really at the heart of it is, you know, creating 10 new categories isn't going to solve the funding problem. This is really, at the end of the day, who's paying for the benefits. It's some combination of the government, the institution, and the individual. And so we have to design laws and incentives that make the provision of this social safety net both feasible and sort of more extensive. We can't forget, especially in a country like the United States, that often the law is not what dictates what the social safety net is, the market is. Paid vacation is not a legally mandated benefit. The market dictates that, you know, 75% of salaried workers get paid vacations. There's a whole host of benefits that employees get that are not, again, like, you know, sort of enshrined in law, but are provided. And so it's really a question of incentives and the government saying, how do we change incentives for platforms and for individuals in a way that generates the funding that can then sort of provide the safety net in the same way that the incentives were generated for the employers to start to sort of provide some of these benefits. We may realize that it's not economically feasible for a company to provide certain benefits like we've discovered with pension plans in a lot of like, you know, large companies that it's just not economically viable to bear all of that burden as a private employer. And so I think we'll experiment with platforms providing some benefits. The platforms will then sort of realize that the business model is not viable. With all of these benefits, we'll retool but the 401k plan, which sort of touches a small fraction of the workforce, which is sort of the incentive-based answer to pension plans, right? I'm incented to save, my company's incented to contribute. The government gives us a tax break and creates incentives. So that's what we need for the other slices of the social safety net. And I worry a lot because you're absolutely right in that, you know, a lot of people don't really identify a job with their work anymore. Gen Z in particular, even controlling for the fact that they're young and like, you know, the youth sort of tend to like to do different things. They are fundamentally wired not to think about asset ownership. They consume services. And I think this partly has to do with their experience as children consuming music and video as services. Like you and I bought records or cassette tapes and we had our collections, right? That was our first real experience as a consumer was ownership. For our kids, it's services, and that's how they're wired, but also not thinking about work as a job, but as a set of projects. So we're going to have a generation who will fall through the social safety net, unless we shore it up and fund it well over the next 20 years. And, you know, this is a hugely, hugely important public policy challenge, especially for the U.S. and the U.K. and Japan, where the government provided social safety net is sort of, like, you know, slimmer in some sense.
1: Yeah, and there are a couple other things that you highlight in the book that I thought were very insightful. One was that we're moving away from firms requiring firm-specific human capital, and it's really more like task specific human capital, right? And this, this means that the employees are no longer kind of locked in, that they can take their skills with them. And it also means that a lot of the, the kind of rents are accruing to the, the employees as opposed to the, to the companies. And you also show there's a lot of data that shows that access to these platforms can substantially improve the the income of certain types of, of employees. If this is true, then this seems to be a response to, say, my colleague Robert Reich's claim that the sharing economy is really the the sharing the scraps economy. I think you're a little bit more optimistic about the impact on employee welfare.
0: Yeah, I am. There are some natural economic forces of decentralization that make it less likely that we will see the outcome that, for example, Robert Reich, your colleague at Berkeley, is also another sort of proponent of the race to the bottom sort of scenario as being sort of the end of this. But again, I think that there are limits to that that are dictated by the economic system that you're in. If sort of aggregating capital ends up giving you more power, if the political and economic system is designed in a way that favors extremely large organizations over individuals, then these natural sort of decentralization of value capture that comes from the individual holding more of the, you know, the intellectual capital or the human capital can sort of like there'll be a pushback against them. I feel like I'm coming back to the thing that I said a few minutes ago, but it it is, at the end of the day, a big part of the answer. There are some benefits to sort of the neoliberal philosophies that we've followed over the last 40 years, but there are also some limitations. I think that as we are going through this transition in our economy, both on the automation front and on the platform front, it's useful to think about like, you know, just how extensive should the role of the government be? And what should that balance be between free markets and free trade and like its alternatives? So I don't think it's going to be a share the scraps economy, but I do feel like where we end up isn't going to just be determined by the economic fundamentals. It's also, you know, at one point, economics was called political economy, right? And then the politics got taken out and it just became economics. But that marriage between sort of political and social systems and the economic outcomes has sort of, it's been decoupled in our analysis. And I think that's part of the reason why we are at the state of high inequality that we're at today. Because like, you know, the economics textbooks have sort of taken us there in some sense by saying that total surplus is the right metric to maximize. But anyway, I digress.
1: Well, you also point out that with the way in which we think about GNP is probably outdated. You argue that we are failing to capture a lot of the productivity improvements and the upside that is made possible by these new new business models. Now, I think neither one of us are are macroeconomists, which is why maybe what they do doesn't always make sense to us. But how would you argue that our measures of national wealth and and output are kind of mismeasured?
0: Well, in the context of the United States, I think there's a wide variety of ways in which value is created for individuals, some of which ends up being measured well by money. You know, the simplest way to imagine this is to sort of think about all the consumer surplus that is not measured, And we've always known that we're not measuring consumer surplus, but I think that the fraction of value creation from digital technologies that is consumer surplus is sort of significantly higher than, say, the fraction of value creation from, like, you know, manufacturing a car or building a house. That's one element of why the mismeasurement problem sort of seems to have grown. But I think more than the total The distribution, the mismeasurement of how things are distributed is a particularly acute problem. You know, I think about my first experience with Uber in 2012, where like, you know, I pressed a button and like, you know, this sort of black car came and picked me up and it was all black car. It was not an everyday experience for me. Right, And for a lot of people, the idea of having this nice luxury transportation on demand was equalizing. It was not just a small subset of people who worked for large companies that could have access to this. It was sort of a much bigger fraction of the population. And you, know, you look at the fraction of the population in China or India that has access to car-based transportation now. It's so much greater than it was 10 years ago. And this is not new. I mean, the fraction of the population that has access to a phone that has access to streaming video entertainment has grown dramatically we don't measure this in the numbers when we measure income and wealth inequality and so to me a big part of like you know this mismeasurement isn't just that we're getting gdp wrong but that we're also getting changes in inequality wrong because we're focused too much on the metrics that follow from GDP, which are like, you know, income measures and wealth
1: measures. So now I have a million movies on demand instead of the the three DVDs that I have on the shelf, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. There's a tremendous increase in surplus from consumption, right? And I spend, whatever, 15 bucks a month on Netflix. That would have been, I don't know, five movie rentals at Blockbuster, even before you sort of account for inflation and so on the amount of value creation is just sort of immensely higher, right? And none none of this gets captured in GDP. And so you're right. I mean, neither of us are macroeconomists. And, you know, the macroeconomists have a simple reason why they continue to measure GDP is that, like, you know, they can define it with some level of precision. You know, at least conceptually, we understand what it is. I mean, if you depart from GDP, you're immediately sort of in a really gray area, it's sort of like rationality and economics, right? I mean, you know, rationality, we all kind of know that it isn't a good model, but it's extremely easy to define precisely and agree on. Once you get to bounded rationality or, you know, behavioral economics, then you don't quite know what the standard is. You don't know what the benchmark is. It's like infinity is well defined. Anything else before that, like, you know, you have to choose a number, then you have to agree on the number. And I think that there's sort of a problem of that flavor in sort of the, What is the alternative to GDP? It's just something that becomes more and more important with the sharing economy. I think in developing countries or countries where the economic institutions aren't as well developed, it's even more of an issue because the inability of a lot of people to connect to institutions means that their assets can't even be capitalized. The value of someone's home just doesn't show up even though that's an asset that could be because the person doesn't have an identity, which allows them to sort of take out a mortgage or use this to get a small business loan. And so the ability to convert assets into capital is vastly inferior in some countries compared to the United States. So there's an even bigger measurement problem there because a lot of the things that could be measured right are not being measured.
1: Last question. You end with a very provocative suggestion which is that generalists in the workforce are ultimately going to be more important and you're more likely to survive if you have a more generalizable skill set that you can kind of plug into all of these these different platforms on demand. How do you think about that? Does that apply only to people who are they can walk the dog and then assemble your ikea furniture or is this idea of being a generalist also going to apply to software engineers you know educators and and other skilled laborers
0: yes it is although you know if i was writing the book today i'd emphasize sort of being entrepreneurial more than being a generalist you know i still think that the characteristics associated with being a generalist will continue to be increasingly valuable over time But I think the real sort of shift is going to be and the real value capture is going to be from people who are more entrepreneurial as individuals for a couple of reasons. One is that more and more skilled professions will provide the opportunity for individuals to run a business of their own. Law, consulting, we've already seen it to some extent in high-end software engineering where an increasing number of software engineers earn a very good living as entrepreneurs who are just sort of like, you know, renting themselves out to companies periodically, either through word of mouth or through a platform like Gigster. And you'll see this with law, you'll see this with accounting, you'll see this with management consulting. Professors, I don't know, I think the nature of the product that we sell is much more than just sort of the content we deliver in the classroom, right? I mean, that $300,000 degree that private university sells is a complex product that an individual professor may find it hard to replicate through a platform. But I also think the entrepreneurialism will play an important role as we encounter a growing fraction of the skilled workforce who are going to have to reskill and switch occupations mid-career. I've seen estimates as high as 25 to 30 percent of the U.S. and Japanese workforce will have to move to a different occupation in the next 10 years. I think I saw the same estimate five years ago. Some people have already begun that transition, but the ability to sort of reimagine like you know how you can earn money and what you can do and successfully make that transition in a world where our economic institutions are focused almost exclusively on early career rather than mid-career, I think there'll be much bigger rewards to people who are, to some extent, generalists, but to a larger extent, entrepreneurial. And so that's really, to me, both the characteristic and the education that is going to be central to sort of success and happiness in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that's what we increasingly need to focus on teaching in our university classrooms. Arun, thank you so much for joining me. Don't forget, Arun Sundara Rajan. The Sharing Economy. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Greg. I mean, this was a delightful conversation. I mean, like, I think you've probed deeper than most conversations I've had of this kind. And it was, it was really a pleasure, very incisive. And, you know, I think we sort of got to places that one normally doesn't get in conversations like this. So I hope people find it interesting and useful and sort of a little more cerebral than your typical podcast.
1: Let's hope so. See you soon.